0: You're listening to Rural Roots Rising by The Rural Organizing Project, a monthly radio show and podcast created by and for rural Oregonians who are creatively and courageously building stronger and more vibrant communities for a just democracy. This is the first episode of our brand new season two. We're calling this episode, Lifting the Veil, Behind the Scenes with ROP. My name is Meredith Martin-Motes, and I actually live in Arkansas, and I typically play a behind-the-scenes role of producer of this podcast. I help organizers conduct the interviews and weave the stories together, and I make sure they all fit real nice and neat into a 29-minute package so that the radio stations across the state can easily air them. I'd like to add that we would love to add an audio specialist to this series, so if that's you, please let us know. If you caught our season finale, Hindsight 2020, you know that we did a little bit of looking back and a little bit of looking forward. But to get us rolling into season two, we're going to do a little bit of digging underneath, so to speak. You know, lift the veil. How and why did we make the decisions we made? Why did we put so much energy into making sure that we're not just a podcast, but that we're also creating monthly media for rule stations? One of the main goals of this podcast isn't just to share stories about rule organizing, although of course that's important. But we're also here to be a resource for communities looking to create their own media and tell their own stories. So it's a way of learning by doing and making sure that we're learning in public, sharing out those skills and helping build resources that people can then take and adapt. So myself and the three main voices behind Rural Roots Rising.
1: My name is Emma Renee
0: Durning. Uh, This is Jess Campbell. And this is Hannah Harrods. Hopped on the phone to dig a little bit deeper into the multi-layered strategy behind Real Roots Rising and some of the things that we're weaving into the future.
2: So
3: can y'all tell me a little bit about what led ROP to this place of wanting to create community-based media? So for years and years, when I was, even back when, before I was co-director, organizing director, and I was just an organizer, we would talk to our friends who worked at community radio stations, who would really ask us and sometimes beg us if we had other content that they could be playing on the radio, just knowing that they have gaps in their programming sometimes. And we released an oral history project called Rural Organizing Voices a few years ago, was timed to coincide with the passing of our late founder, Marcy Westerling. And when that became live and it's a website and uh, you can go look at it or listen to the content at ruralorganizingvoices.org. But when we released it, we had a number of radio stations asking if they could use that content on the air because they were hungry for having rural voices on the air. I want to jump in here and say that if you're listening
0: to this podcast in a city or even if you're in a small town or rural area and you're picking this up on your local station, It can be easy to take for granted the resource that you're using right now, and it might be easy to think, okay, sure, so some stations wanted more rural voices. That's cool. But let's think about what that can mean strategically. So to do that, let's skip back for just a few moments to some interviews with community radio producers who helped to inspire this podcast. Let's start with Carol Newman. She's located in the unincorporated village of Brownsmead, Oregon and she helped to found KMUN, Coast Community Radio.
4: In 2007, when there was a huge storm, where I live, we were out for six days with nothing, no way to communicate. And all the local stations were off the air, except us. And that's because we actually... (laughs) Had filled our tank, our generator tank, unlike the commercial local stations. And so we were the, so the mayor came, the police came, the fire came, they all came to our station to broadcast.
0: And now let's go back to Arturo Sarmiento, the station manager at Radio Poder and K2UP, created by Picun, Oregon's Tree Planters and Farm Workers Union which reaches about 300 square
4: miles around Woodburn. A lot of farm workers, a lot of campesinos from the rural areas, they wanted to be connected with their own places, and they started listening their music in Radio Movimiento, Mexican music, but not the commercial Mexican music, you know more traditional music, more local music from different places. Then we had programming in their own languages, like Mixteco, like Purépecha. So they got information about immigration, about uh, health, about um, labor rights, about education, about many things.
0: So let's pivot back to the staff conversation, where Jess walks us through how conversations about community-produced media started popping up in member groups and gatherings.
3: And so we even had a podcasting strategy session, training, uh, you know, combination session, and folks were really fired up about it. And we kind of got the mandate from our network then and there that this felt like a really exciting opportunity that ROP should experiment more with. This also coincided with, you know, after the 2016 election and rural people just really got blamed for what happened with that election result. We just really saw how folks just felt like their work was made completely invisible. We had talked about starting in November of 2019 and then ending November 2020 as a way of really saying this rural organizing has been happening for decades, for generations, really, if you want to get down to it. But as ROP, we hold a few decades. And how do we not allow for that work to be made invisible? And how do we really speak for ourselves about what our priorities are and what's going on?
2: I want us to talk a little bit about the process of going from an idea to an actual First episode that was, you know, airing across rural stations. Can y'all talk to me a little bit about what that process was like?
1: The short version is we just figured it out as we went along. There's so many, so many questions that I didn't even know we needed to ask in the beginning. And thank goodness, Meredith, you were there to help like guide us through that process of okay, now, now you need to figure out how you're going to turn a raw interview into something that is actually condensed into 30 minutes or into 10 minutes because we want to put multiple people together. And there are tons of conversations, we brought tons of people in to figure out what the name should be, what the graphic should look like, what uh, what our tagline was going to be, what we even wanted to focus on.
3: Well, pretty early on, we had a conversation together about, you know, what would be good hallmarks or good thresholds of a strong episode of Rural Roots Rising, really taking into consideration, uh, you know, the many stereotypes that people have about rural, which, you know, rural is often used, I think, especially by folks in cities to be synonymous with white and uneducated or white and blue collar. So what we were really hoping to do with Rural Roots Rising was to tell a different story and tell a more accurate story about what rural Oregon looks like. So we had the general thresholds or benchmarks or whatever you want to call it, conditions, uh, for a strong episode was that the folks who were telling stories in it were multiracial, multigenerational, and multi regional, meaning that they're not two people who are in the same town or same county, but hopefully we get some geographic representation across the state as well. My name is Miriam Vargas-Corona, the executive director
5: of Unidos Bridging Community. We are a small non-profit organization in rural Yamhill County.
1: My name is Emma Renee Durning, and today I'm interviewing
0: Gwendolyn Trice. Lawa County is approximately the size of Rhode Island, yet it has about just over 7,000 people.
1: Not just rural; it's a frontier county.
3: So
2: I'm uh, Harry McCormick, and I've run Sunbow Farm, been at Sunbow Farm here for 48 years. Um, I was a co-founder of Oregon Tilth with Lynn
3: Cody. What's your name? Anything you're willing to share? Um, Adriana Aquarius. I'm the 21 year old who put the protest together uh, downtown Ben on Saturday. No justice,
4: no peace.
1: No justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. Uh, We had these like big picture goals to start out with, but actually figuring out how you turn goals into these specifically timed audio shows it was a totally new experience for for many of us. We had to, yeah, we had to learn. How to interview people well. We had to learn how to listen to interviews and figure out what would ter- what would be a good story for someone who maybe didn't know the person who was being interviewed or didn't know the whole story that they were telling. Putting out our first episode, I think, was a huge feat. And every single episode after that was like, oh, we have to learn this new thing. Every time we were kind of trying out a different format or trying something new or the interviews were just different. They encouraged us to like work with them in a different way.
2: I was wondering if y'all could share with me some examples of how you found yourself learning about people you already knew. Yeah, I can
5: start with that. Um, I definitely had that experience that you named so many times, Meredith, of being surprised by all that I took away from an interview with somebody. Um, One example that comes to mind for me immediately is that I got to sit down with um, my friend Navmi.
4: My name is Navneet Kaur, and I live in Salem.
5: A brilliant organizer. Um, We worked closely together around the organizing to really get folks released from FCI Sheridan. We talked to Navneet in the It Takes All of Us episode.
4: There were about 110 men um, that were brought overnight to... Um, FCI Sheridan, who had been out in like different countries in dangerous circumstances for over a year, and just to get to America so that they could find that respite, which they did not get.
5: And I remember going into that, and I was really looking forward to seeing Avni, because I hadn't seen her in some months, and so I was like, yes, I get to go have tea in Avni's house, this will be so great. But I wasn't anticipating how powerful of an experience it would be actually to sit and reflect together on that organizing and to hear her like tell our story back to me, but in this way that was like so, you know, deeply emotional around like what was her experience of being in the
4: work. So I think the word respite in this context was really powerful because once they got out they were given this welcoming and loving environment where they would eat home cooked meals and served to them in like this warm atmosphere so that they could be like at ease and breathe you know breathe for once in all this time
5: I think so often when we're in it we're You know, we're moving fast and there's so much going on and then it's done and we're on to the next thing. And so, like, having that time to just sit together and in that episode, we definitely cried together. (laughs) We laughed a lot. Her grandson was, like, running around. (laughs)
4: And
5: I hadn't gotten to meet him before. So it was just really special to have that time to sit and to kind of talk about, like, what did we take away from this organizing and how has it shifted and changed who we are as organizers and how we, like, move through the work in general.
4: Seeing what happened at Sheridan, I think that it was not just the lawyers that did all that. It was all of us together. And I think that the system works. It does work. I, and I've experienced that. But that it took so long for that system to get into action, that was really difficult. And, and it, it
5: worked, it seems like, in many ways, because so many people, like, it wouldn't have worked.
4: Oh, if, no, it would if not have.
5: they hadn't had access to pro bono lawyers and interpreters like yourself and other people who took and, action.
4: And I think that it was the whole community that came together. I know of other places that have had pro bono lawyers. Let's take, for example, there was um, the city in, in California where there were over 700 such men detained. And nothing happened there. Because the whole community did not come together like we did here.
2: So, as someone who has been making media in different forms over the years. One of the things I think is the greatest thing about making media is that it really forces you to see media in new ways. I mean, I know when I first started working in journalism and creating podcasts and things, the way I would hear uh, radio pieces or TV pieces or even read written pieces really transformed after I was on the back end and saw kind of what that process was like. But I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about your own experiences in creating podcasts and how it's changed or pushed the boundaries or enhanced or um, forced you to think in new ways about the ways that you consume media.
1: I think a, a big thing that's changed for me is understanding the the amount of time it really takes. I think listening to podcasts that I love over the years, I've always been like, oh yeah, they sat down and then like recorded that narration and then they put the interview on it and there we go. January of this year, we'd put out two or maybe three episodes and somebody came up to me and said, hey, I really love your podcast. We're thinking about making one as well. How long does it take for you to make an episode? And I was like, oh yeah, I hadn't really thought about that. Let me, and I tried to like calculate it in my head. Okay, maybe maybe like 30 hours. And her face just dropped like, oh God, no, I cannot do that. And I will say that we have like, we were definitely making more complicated episodes than maybe necessary. And we've definitely learned a lot and how to to simplify them from there. But at the time, 30 hours was probably an undercount of how, how much was going into this with all the different people. So it was a moment for me of like, wow, we have a lot under our belt already, and I'm excited to to share it.
5: So it's yeah, like you named Meredith, it's changed how I listen to podcasts and you know, radio. And I have a specific memory of driving out to the gorge with my partner, and we were listening listening to Dolly Parton, um, America, and after we're driving. I kept like rewinding to be like, wait, how did they do that transition? Oh, I like the way they put that in, And he was like, Oh my god, can we just listen to a podcast episode? <laughs> So I think that like interest now and in piecing it together and like oh how do you like weave a really rich story because it's not as simple as it seems right and like when you're just sitting down with a person and they're in front of you it's so engaging to like hear their story and you can see their face and you can see their eyes and their all the hand motions that they're making and when you don't have that you're having to figure out in a different way.
2: One of the things that's kind of been an undercurrent through this process and you know something we want to rise to the surface more as we're doing community media work, but is this connection between storytelling and organizing? And I know, Jess, you've said, I've heard you say several times, storytelling is what keeps people in movement. Um, But how has this podcast really helped you think about the connection between storytelling and organizing?
5: So I think it's changed the way that I think about, like, how do you construct a meaningful story and how do you Like, how do we tell back our stories in a way that captures how powerful they actually are? You know, the other thing is, you know, I grew up going to church, I almost said every Sunday, three times a week at least, (laughs) and so much of that experience of, like, the, you know, small town church is stories. And for me, so much of my, like, adulthood has been sorting through the church stories and, like, keeping the ones that still are deeply meaningful and resonant and healing from the ones that weren't. I think, too, like there's such a deep history in so many of our rural cultures around storytelling. And so there's also something really special around like preserving and building our capacity around that skill set. And I think the ways that like our movements benefit from our ability to tell each other our organizing stories back and it tells so much about who we are. You know, I did the, like, traditional small-town kid who thinks they, like, need to go up and leave their community and go to college and escape. And so much of that was, like, the stories that I heard and internalized about my community and about, like, what it means to be a rural person. So much of being a part of the ROP network that's been so powerful and healing for me has been, like, hearing different stories told back to me about what it actually means to be a rural person and to have the ability to sort of reclaim that. I
1: just wanted to draw out that Hannah, I totally agree that like, we've built our skills as organizers in terms of storytelling. Um, But I think every, like many, many interviews that we do, I also hear or hear that you have heard from the people that are being interviewed say like, oh wow, this really like changed the way that I think about the organizing I do. I actually did so much more or we did so much more than I thought that we had, or I didn't remember until we started talking about it that we won this thing.
5: That's exactly right. I remember um, I went to a group meeting with the purpose of um, recording them in like a group interview talking about what they had been organized, what they've been doing in their organizing as a group. You know, right before going to the meeting, they were like, you know, we're actually thinking about going on hiatus. Like, we don't feel like we're accomplishing a lot right now. And, well, you know, through the course of the interview, it was like, tell me about everything that you all have accomplished over this last year. And we were just like talking through what they'd been up to. And after the end of the interview, they're like, we can't just like, look at this stuff that we're doing. Like, we have to
3: keep our group alive. This is so awesome. And they have continued on the group. I think in a similar vein, you know, especially with COVID and just how many folks were reeling about how their families or their communities were going to take care of each other in the wake of, you know, a global pandemic recession and massive layoffs and you know, so many folks just really hurting. You know, not having communication infrastructure to really ensure that people could remote work remotely or do distance learning. Uh, you know, we also saw how Rural Roots Rising was an opportunity to share out some real skills. And, you know, just experiments, honestly, about how folks were just kind of jumping on it and somewhat impulsively just being like, well, we know how to get people fed. (laughs) We can do that. Uh, You know, why don't we just put meals on those school buses? That's an easy solution. And so, you know, I think that's another beauty of rural roots raising is it has been an extension, really of the kind of conversations that we would have been having and we would have been holding in living rooms across the state, but we were able to do it in cars and also still in living rooms, but, you know, distanced living rooms through radio. So at the start of this series, you all knew that you wanted to partner with community-based
2: media, as you were saying, Jess. We also know and there was lots of conversations around how many small town and rural communities no longer have any locally produced uh, media, if they have any sort of paper or, news, or radio at all, a lot of times it's some corporate kind of you know pumped in from somewhere else, and sometimes there's not even that. But we knew that you know we wanted to figure out what are some ways that we could be uh, pre- part of that creative solution. But I'm wondering if y'all can tell me a little bit about the developments along the way, some stuff about the radio ads that you've been producing, uh, and some of the partnerships that we're building with with uh, rural radio stations across the state.
1: We definitely didn't know that COVID was going to be a thing when we started out on this on this journey. And when the pandemic hit and there was this shutdown in the beginning, it was just like, oh my goodness, think how lucky it is it that we already had this plan to be creating radio, which is something that is a very easily distanced activity in a lot of ways. And we actually saw like partners and folks in member groups starting radio shows or getting uh, building deeper relationships with radio over the course of the pandemic as well. And that was kind of a cool parallel of like, Oh yeah, we were building these skills. Other people across the network are building them too. This feels like such a good moment. And we ended up doing a whole episode on community radio stations and people that were working with community radio to get information out about COVID. And and then as the election was coming up, we were creating resources for our groups to use to organize around the election and have conversations about what was coming up on the ballot, why not add radio to that list? It's such an accessible way to get information out there, and we already had the skills, so we just kind of jumped into doing public service announcements about who is able to vote, how to get registered, what to do if you've been displaced from your home because of wildfires.
4: Did you know that
1: even if you don't have stable housing, you can still vote? You can use a shelter, park, or the elections office as your official address to register to vote. If you're living somewhere temporarily because of wildfires or other circumstances, you don't need to re-register. Just tell election officials where to mail your ballot. You can pick up all of your mail, including ballots, once they are mailed on October 14th at the post office that serves your permanent residence address. Visit www.oregonvotes.org or call your county's election office to register or change your mailing address. To learn more about what's on the ballot, Check out the Stand Election Guide at www.rop.org. This public service announcement has been produced by the Rural Organizing Project. Public service announcements and the radio ads felt like a way to reach people when we weren't able to necessarily see them in person. Once the pandemic is over, we should totally keep doing public service announcements, keep doing radio ads. It felt like a really amazing way to to reach new people. My last
2: question is, I'm curious about where we're going to go from here. Can you tell listeners a little bit more about what they can expect from season two?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, from the from the very beginning, we were wanting to expand the number of rural stories that were told by rural people and expand the number of rural Oregonians creating media and creating stories of their own. So in season two, we're excited to be featuring podcasts and radio shows from across rural Oregon. If you have one or you have dreams to have one, we want to talk to you. We'd love to feature your work or help you create a show that we could then feature. We're really excited to kind of expand the number of creators that are shared on this platform that we've now created over podcasts and um what are we at now 16 17 local radio stations across the state i thought it was 19 19 across 19 radio stations all over the state
3: so part of what we are really working on right now is we have hired on our very first organizational archivist a few years ago we switched to a model where we didn't have a single solitary centralized office so now, you know, a few years later, we have a community building center in downtown Cottage Grove, uh, and it's, a, you know, a 4,000-square-foot building that folks use from for meetings and gatherings and now mutual aid work, and it's also going to be home of our archive. Part of what we are really excited to be building up right now is how do we realize and recognize Shoulders we're standing on in doing this work right now and doing this work in a moment that for many feels like it's just kind of untenable. And for many folks, uh, you know, that I've talked to personally who felt like maybe organizing is futile, especially in those moments leading up to the election that just felt extremely dangerous and you could just feel the tension in communities and being able to point to other moments that felt that way and look at how much things have progressed in our community since then because people didn't give up and people were willing to keep going. This really, really matters. And it breaks isolation when we're able to do that. And if people are listening and they're like, I really have a great
2: idea for a podcast or I want to connect, I want to share, I want to take part, um, what's the best way to get in touch?
1: I'd say reach out to us at info at ruralrootsrising.org, or you can go to Rural Organizing Project's website, rop.org, and find emails and contact info for for any of us.
0: You've been listening to Lifting the Veil, behind the scenes with ROP, the first episode of Season 2 of Rural Roots Rising. This monthly radio show and podcast is created by and for rural Oregonians and rural Arkansans who are creatively and courageously building stronger and more vibrant communities for a just democracy. Do you want to get involved in this work of building community media? Do you have an idea for a show of your own? Or you want an excuse to interview an organizer in your life? Maybe you're interested in partnering with local stations in your area or starting one of your own email us at info at ruralrootsrising.org. We featured music from The Road Sodas, John Watts, and Junior 85. Rural Roots Rising is created by the Rural Organizing Project, a network of over 65 autonomous member groups who are committed to advancing human dignity and democracy across rural Oregon. To learn more about the Rural Organizing Project, go to rop.org. If you like what you heard today, you can find more episodes at ruralrootsrising.org. And don't forget, you can follow the Rural Organizing Project on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or subscribe to Rural Roots Rising wherever you get your podcast. Thanks so much for listening.